It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. We may be having a case here where Mattis and Kelly are just sort of kind of not listening to Donald Trump. In this case, what we have is the art of the bluff. This is what Trump does all the time, you know. As far as I'm concerned, it's like he's playing battleship in between golf games at his golf course. Welcome back to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King. This is a continuation of our two-part conversation about the New York Times and the Washington Post with Jim Warren of Pointer. If you missed part one, go back one episode in your podcast feed and take it from the top. Here it goes. Where we left off yesterday, we were talking with Jim about the editors of these papers. We focused a little bit on Dean Baguet of the New York Times. I want to pick it up and talk about Marty Barron of the Washington Post. Jim, drill a little bit into the story behind Marty Barron. They say that Liev Shriver's portrayal of him in Spotlight the movie depicting the Boston Globe's probe into the scandal of pedophile priests in the Archdiocese of Boston was dead-on accurate about him. Let's hear a little clip from that movie. You anticipate more cuts. I think uh, I'm going to need to take a hard look at things. What I'm more focused on right now is finding a way to, uh, to make this paper essential to its readers. Jim, if you can make an award-winning movie about these papers every couple of years, you can add that to the revenue stream for these papers. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, he brought the same attitude toward the Post. And, you know, he obviously analyzed that newsroom. He knew that there was a, a huge amount of lethargy. Um, there was uh, a lot of, of outright fear of the future. And, uh, you know, he's proved a, a very adroit, uh, inspiring newsroom leader in in raising their game and saying, hey, we're going to play on the big stage again. We're going to swing for the fences. You know, we're going to try to hit lots of home runs. And he's done that again with a uh, with the, the sort of great fearlessness that the truly great editors have. And I think a little bit too much can be made and sort of psychoanalyzing him and saying, well, you know, he's kind of, it can be a little bit taciturn or not terribly outgoing. He is a very decisive, can be a very funny guy. He just doesn't have necessarily that 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 overt sort of flair that a, a Dean Baquet does, but they are very similar. And where the rubber meets the road is that he went out and started hiring terrific people. I mean, the depth there, both in uh, reporting and in editing, is significant. And he's obviously spent a huge amount of time in doing what, you know, people forget and something like Spotlight, you know, doesn't touch, which is one of the core functions of, of anybody running a large organization like that, which is being really smart on the personnel front and when you don't necessarily have unlimited spots to fill and you know you you, you better be right and your mistakes can come back to haunt you uh, his track record has been um, you know marvelous I want to focus Jim on one other journalist who you 
made specific mention about in your article who really did bring flair, really unlike any other reporter that I can remember. I want to play a clip of a conversation in 2014 between Tom Fiedler, who was at Boston University, Andy Lack, now the chairman of NBC News, and the late David Carr of The Times. Here's David on the new names that were coming into the media establishment. If the media space is so fraught and ultimately doomed that these threats are, are fundamentally existential, why is Warren Buffett in the business? Why is Pierre Omidar in the business? Why is Jeff Bezos in the business? John Henry. Yeah, John Henry. And if you take even one step away from that, if you talk to an Eric Schmidt or you talk to a Tim Cook at Apple or Steve Jobs when he was still with us, their concern in, in the efficacy and richness of available information, not just data but news, on the web is, is, is something they bring up over and over again because you can have the best a search function in the world, but if it's calling, crawling across a cesspool, it's not going to bring back much. The battle past, present, and future embodied in that person of David Carr, Jim Warren. Why does he represent the bridge between the papers of old and potentially the, the news channels of new? Well, I mean, uh, there was a remarkable, uh, you know, interesting guy who had been a drug addict, had served, you know, a, a little bit of time in jail, uh, had uh, had once a big problem with uh, alcoholism, and uh, he made his way up the, you know, the journalism at uh, alternative papers. I first knew him in the 90s when I was reading terrific political stuff he was doing for the city paper in Washington, D.C., then he becomes the uh, they're sort of very idiosyncratic choice for the times um you know he, he they hire him he becomes their chief media writer and he it just devours the world of of new media and in some ways becomes you know a, a proponent of of a, of a lot of that and he had a pretty good sense of how uh, the old business model was fraying and how uh, lots of new entrance were 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 changing the world and he was he was he was ahead of that and he was he was also he had nerve he was a terrific writer terrific reporter it it was hard for folks to suck up to him and uh, he just sort of resonated an honesty that uh, was was unmistakable and even people who uh, didn't necessarily agree with his opinions very much uh, respected him and he was right there covering the media as uh, this transition to this 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 scary new world was uh, was was playing out and i think he combined an understanding of the technological the unavoidable technological changes and their benefits he he combined that with a really sincere and profound uh, respect for for the values of old of some of which are you know were were not necessarily held in high esteem by some of the brash new you know, internet entrepreneurs. So he was an absolutely fascinating character who, who I got to know through in the alternative uh, weekly world. And then when he, um, he happened to be at, uh, I think, teaching a course or teaching a class one day at, at, at uh, Medill School of Journalism in Northwestern in, in Evanston, Illinois, we ended up having lunch and he was asking me whether, you know, there would be a story in what was then sort of almost Trump-like chaos at Tribune Company with um, a very mercurial real estate billionaire had taken Sam over Zell. and I said to Sam Zell and I said, oh yes, <laughs> yes, 
Great story. And uh, there was all this craziness that was happening that everybody knew, the board of directors knew, but it wasn't until ultimately David Carr's page one story later in that year, uh, it wasn't until then that um, the, the impact of the Times was again seen. And within a couple of days, the CEO of the company was canned by the board. And the, now that's that's true impact. But he's also um, was an example of... Um, the eclectic nature, a lot of the talents at the times, very different than you might have found there 40 or 50 years ago. I was just uh, emailing yesterday a, a fabulous, interesting reporter who was in Mosul, Iraq, who's who's got a, a reputation as one of the, the finest chroniclers and analysts of, of, of terrorism and al-Qaeda and ISIS, Rukmini Kalamaki, who, uh, you know, 15 years ago, was an intern at the Daily Herald in Arlington Heights, Illinois, covering Christmas tree lighting in Streamwood. She had sent out a hundred resumes to newspapers, and all she could get was an internship at the at the Daily Herald. And, and I think she had a, a an offer of an internship or something at the Corpus Christi newspaper. And every time she came down to downtown Chicago, she would put her hands on the outside of the Tribune building close her eyes and pray that one day she could get a job at the Chicago Tribune. Never happened. Now she's one of the, the great terrorism reporters. But uh, it, it's it, she and Carr are both examples of how, uh, you know, some of the caricature of the New York Times as being, you know, the, the old gray lady and a lot of pipe smoking old white guys. Um, that's not true anymore. And I think it's helping them quite a bit in attempting to make this very, very difficult transition to a new uh, journalism world where they remain, you know, one of the, the great practitioners of, of quality content, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're short of success. So as you say, Jim, the payrolls are shorter, the margins a little tighter, the buyouts keep coming. And at some point, we're not going to have Donald J. Trump to kick around anymore. And at some point, he's not going to kick around the New York Times and Washington Post anymore. I want to finish our conversation by playing one clip from CPAC earlier this year, but it's a attack that he continues weekly and daily. Let's hear a listen. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. So I'm not against the media. I'm not against the press. I don't mind bad stories if I deserve them. And I tell you, I love good stories, but we won't talk. <laughs> I don't get too many of them. But I am only against the fake news media or press. Fake, fake. They have to leave that word. So if your story is the last great media war is the New York Times versus the Washington Post versus Donald Trump, who has the dragons on their side, who has the White Walkers, and who's left standing, the Lannisters, the Starks, or the Targaryens, or the Post, the Times, or Trump, when this is all done? My gosh, what a question. Um, you know, uh, just take that clip you just played. Um, two or three just outright lies. <laughs> you know, there by the president of the you know, United States. I don't mind bad stories. That the, you know, yes, he does. does mind anything that's not a, a a total puff job and when you heard that cheering in that audience you know i think that was that was emblematic of what's going on um among his among his base and is a central backdrop for this whole 
a rivalry between the the Times and the Post. It's a central backdrop for everything they're doing, uh, which is this concerted effort by Donald Trump to devalue, even absolutely delegitimize the press. He's trying to, you know, undermine these these basic notions that we all have of fairness and notions of standards. You know, as I said, he's brought this term fake news into our lexicon. And as a, a old friend of mine who's a corporate governance expert in Washington, Nell Minow, put it to me the other day, it's almost like you've got a Gresham's law of, um, of information. So instead of, you know, the real Gresham's law, which is about bad money driving out good money, you have here bad media driving out good media, not to mention driving out notions of science and empirical data. And it brings up, I think, one of the, the, the larger questions here uh, amid the superior work of these two newspapers, which is, how much does it that, that, that all ultimately matter in a world in which so many people don't differentiate between news organizations that actually name and confirm their sources and those who don't? You know, differentiating between those who take responsibility for mistakes and those who do not. Then throw in, you know, what you alluded to, which is a question of, you know, what happens when there's no longer a Trump bump? What happens when we've got a, a vaguely normal president and there isn't that air of excitement and and people buying these digital subscriptions because they want to see the post and the times coverage of this zany presidency i i think they're very profound and elemental questions though i do think that it's hard to believe that by cranking out as much high quality information as that they do that both papers won't always have some audience, particularly among elites in in various sectors of of the United States and and the world, they are, they are just they're lapping the field. And all you have to do is I'm about to head off on vacation. All you have to do is look at a lot of smaller small town or or even larger regional papers to see this dramatic qualitative gulf between these two guys and um, the rest of their once proud industry, which many of practitioners of which don't have the nerve or the resources that these two guys do and, and don't have the, the spine necessarily to, to roll the dice and invest both in editorial quality and in you know, technological innovation as they, they, they both are doing right now. I've been speaking with Jim Warren. He's the chief media writer at Pointer and author in the latest Vanity Fair of is the New York Times versus the Washington Post versus Trump the last great newspaper war. You can follow Jim's work all week long uh, at pointer.org and follow Jim on Twitter at JimWarren55. Thanks, Jim, for joining us on the show. Hey, it's been great. Thank you so, so much. Ben, that's a page one story. Take it inside someplace. This is a goddamn important story. That's it for our two-part conversation with Jim Warren about the New York Times versus the Washington Post versus Trump. A little real-life newspaper war stuck dab in the middle of the final season of Game of Thrones. Stay tuned to the newspapers and the reporters of the Washington Post and the New York Times to see who rules the seven kingdoms of Washington, D.C. in the end. And let us know what you think of Trumpcast. We always want to know what Westeros is thinking about our program. Tweeted us at RealTrumpCast to give us your thoughts. That's at RealTrumpCast. 
and you can find me on Twitter at Polyoptics. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon, and I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.